Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. It's still 2020, and thanks to COVID-19, we join each other via Zoom to bring you the third installment of a six-part suspense-o-rama featuring suspense episodes selected by you, our mysterious listeners. Today, we listen to a suggestion from Heather, Rhea Bushinska by Ray Bradbury. Bradbury is often credited with bringing science fiction into the literary mainstream. Known mainly for his mastery of the short story, Bradbury was also an acclaimed novelist. Fahrenheit 451, his depiction of a book-burning dystopian future, still resonates with readers today. His collections of thematically linked short stories, including The Martian Chronicles and The Illustrated Man, juxtapose the nostalgia of childhood with anxieties about the future. Suspense was the gold standard of dramatic radio, airing on CBS from 1942 to 1962. Over the course of its 20-year run, Suspense presented seven of Bradbury's stories, some adapted from published works, others written specifically for suspense. Along with traditional thrillers like The Screaming Woman and The Whole Town Sleeping, the program presented two of Bradbury's well-known science fiction stories, Zero Hour and Kaleidoscope. Rhea Bushinska was sold to suspense prior to publication and adapted for radio by frequent suspense contributor Mel Dinelli. The story was eventually published in the June-July 1953 issue of The Saint Detective magazine and later collected in Bradbury's 1964 anthology, The Machineries of Joy. For publication, the title was changed to and so died Rio Bushinska. Rio Bushinska has been adapted for the small screen twice. Once for Alfred Hitchcock Presents in 1956, starring Claude Rains as John Fabian, and a very young Charles Bronson as Lieutenant Detective Krovich. And again for Ray Bradbury Theater in 1988, with Alan Bates as Fabian and Jean-Pierre Calfon as Krovich. Don Minnelli returned to adapt the story for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, while Bradbury penned his own adaptation for Ray Bradbury Theater. Although not explicitly stated in the story, it is likely that the name Ryabashinska is a nod to the Russian-American prima ballerina Tatiana Ryabashinska. An international ballet star at the age of 15, Ryabashinska was the oldest of choreographer George Balanchine's so-called baby ballerinas who helped to bring fame to Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo in the 1930s. On a far more lowbrow note, Rybashinska was also the model for the dancing hippopotamus in the 1940 animated film Fantasia. And now let's listen to Rhea Bushinska from Suspense, first broadcast November 13th, 1947. It's late at night and a chill has set in. You're alone and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music and listen to the voices. Suspense. Tonight, Suspense brings you an all-star cast of Hollywood's finest radio players in the premiere of a remarkable story by Ray Bradbury called Ryabushinska. But first, we'd like to remind you that in hotels, restaurants, and homes of distinction, 
Wherever hospitality is a gracious art, the knowing host serves C-R-E-S-T-A, B-L-A-N-C-A, Cresta Blanca, Cresta Blanca. Yes, the famous name of Cresta Blanca is a symbol of good taste and good living wherever discriminating people gather. And when you serve proud Cresta Blanca California wines, you pay guests the highest compliment a host can offer. So, distinguish your table by pouring Cresta Blanca Burgundy or Cresta Blanca Sauterne. Yours to enjoy for gracious dining. Shenley's Cresta Blanca Wine Company, Livermore, California. And now, Shenley brings you radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A. Roma Wines of Fresno, California, for your everyday enjoyment. Tonight, starring Joseph Kearns, Lorene Tuttle, Wally Mayer, and Armina Feigay and Rio Bushinsky. A suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Shenley by William Spear. Mr. Arkham had a look about him in death as he had had in life. A general appearance which might prompt one to say, there's a man who will one day be stabbed, or shot, or booted in the head. And although Mr. Ockham had not met his end in any of the aforementioned ways, he had been strangled. And he was dead. Dead on the floor of a theater cellar. Yes, Mr. Ockham was deceived. And nobody seemed to care. Nobody but Detective Lieutenant Krovich, who'd been sent down to have a look around. On a table, he saw a small, polished bronze box with certain words on the lid which read, Rio Buczynski, property of John Fabian, world's greatest ventriloquist. Krovich looked from the box to the three figures standing stiffly before him. They were John Fabian, ventriloquist, Alice, his wife, and Bernard Douglas, Fabian's press agent. As Krovich lit his cigar... It happened. The four people looked with startled eyes at the box on the table. Then Fabian, the ventriloquist, stepped forward and spoke earnestly. No, Rhea. This is serious business, darling. You stay where you are. <laughs> if you don't mind, Fabian, we'll have the dummy act at another time. Now let's get this matter clear. Each of you testify that you don't know who this dead Mr. Ockham is, yet he told the stage manager tonight that he knew Mr. Fabian and wanted to see him about something important. Oh, stop it, Fabian. <laughs> Pay no attention to her, Lieutenant. Her? You mean you? What is this? Get together, you two. We'll never be together again. Never again after tonight. Give me the key to the box, Fabian. Krovich stood motionless, just looking down, seeing Rhea Bushinska lying in her box and not believing what he saw. He thought, there were nights in life when you dreamed, and this is what you dreamed. There were women you saw in life, far down the street, walking, fragile, far away, unattainable, and this tiny figure was one of them. 
There were voices that you heard singing high in a dark church loft. Voices that made the candle flame shudder and dance to every cadence. And this was one of those voices. On a summer afternoon, you watched a spider gracefully spinning its cloudy web. And now, that web was Rehobuchinska's evening dress, here and now. You had heard of honesty and intelligence and frankness and unafraidness all your life. And now, it looked straight up at you, fearlessly, shiningly, from a puppet's eye. She was so beautiful, your throat closed and you were stabbed, because you knew that she was only a puppet. John Fabian tenderly picked up Ryabushinska. Oh, isn't she beautiful? She's carved from the finest wood, Ryabushinska is. She's appeared in London, Paris, Rome, New York. Everyone in the world knows her and loves her. Many people question Ryabushinska's authenticity. They think she's really alive, that she's a midget. People just cannot believe she's constructed of wood. John Fabian's wife, Alice, stood glaring at her husband with a look of pure hatred. But he was aware of no one but the lifelike figure he held in his arms. And speaking to him, it said, Please don't go on about her, John. Alice doesn't like it. Alice has never liked anything about you, Rhea. Not here, not now, John. Tell me, Lieutenant, how did it all happen? I mean, about poor Mr. Arkham. What is this? You'd best return to your box, Ryabushinska. But I don't want to. I have as much right to listen and talk. I'm as much a part of this murder as Alice. Or Mr. Douglasson. Don't drag me into this, you little witch. And the manner in which he replied made it obvious that Rhea Buczynska was more than an illusion to him. For he reacted to her as to a real person. It's just that I want the truth to be told. And if I'm locked in my brand's casket, there will be no truth. But John Fabian is a consummate liar. And I must watch him. That's right, isn't it, John? Yes, I imagine it is. John loves me best of all the women in the world. And I love him. And try to understand his wrong way of thinking. We're wasting time. If you think you'll interfere with my investigation, baby and lieutenant, I am helpless. But she's in your throat. No. She is in my heart, which is much deeper. Sometimes I'm powerless. Sometimes she is only herself. Nothing of me at all. Sometimes she tells me what to do, and I must do it. She watches over me, reprimands me, is honest where I am dishonest, ethical where I am wicked as old sin. She lives her life, I live mine. She's raised a wall in my head between herself and me, and she lives there, ignoring me if I try to make her say improper things, but cooperating by suggest the correct words and pantomime. So, if you intend going on, I'm afraid Rhea must be present. No, locking her up will do no good. Lieutenant Krovich sat quietly for a few moments. Then he seemed to make a decision. All right, all right, let us stay. Maybe, maybe before the night's over, I'll be tired enough to ask even a ventriloquist dummy questions.
your suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Ria Bushinska. Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, is presented by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A. Roma Wines, selected from the world's greatest reserves of fine wines. Some hosts have a way of making you feel completely welcome whenever you drop in for a visit. Theirs is the kind of hospitality that says, come in and make yourself at home. Well, such is the hospitality of millions of Americans who always keep Roma California wines on hand. For Roma wines lend sparkle and companionship to any occasion. And there's a Roma wine to please every taste. For friendly entertaining, serve not like golden amber Roma sherry rich red Roma port, or mellow flame-bright Roma muscatel. You'll find that these better-tasting Roma wines add warmth and charm to any get-together, brighten those restful stay-at-home evenings with your family. Tomorrow, solve your problem of what to serve when friends drop in with Roma wines. That's R-O-M-A. Roma wines, America's largest selling wines. And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage our Mina Feige as narrator, Joseph Kearns as Fabian the ventriloquist, and Wally Mayer as Detective Krovich in Rhea Bushinska, a play well calculated to keep you in suspense. Once more, Mr. Douglas, do you recognize the dead man? No. He looks somewhat familiar. An actor type, I believe. One of you three is lying. From the condition of Occam's shoes, his worn clothing, he needed money. Are you in love with Mrs. Fabian? Why, I... Really, Lieutenant? I've been watching you... Your actions. My actions? Yes, yes. The way you look at Rio Buczynska's box. The way you hold your breath when she appears. The way you knock your, your fingers when she talks. The way you stare at her. If you think for one moment that I'm jealous of a little piece of wood. Aren't you? No, I'm not jealous of her. You needn't tell him, Alice. Let her. They all stared at the figurine. Even Fabian the ventriloquist. As if her cry had come from an alien throat. Alice, tell them. I... I married John seven years ago. He said he loved me. I loved him and I loved Rhea Buczynska too. At first, anyway. But then I began to see that he really paid more attention to her than he did to me. I began to feel hatred. Not for Rhea Buczynska because it wasn't her fault. But I felt a terrible hatred for John. Because I knew it was all his fault. His cleverness, his sadistic temperament... Each jealousy on my part was a tribute to the perfection of his art. She came out of him like a woman out of a dark god. But I don't hate Rhea. She's lovely, sweet, and honest. Everything that John isn't. Tell about Mr. Douglas. When I got no understanding, no love from John, I turned to Mr. Douglas. Ah, uh-huh. The dead man was a blackmailer. He came to the theater tonight to see your husband about you. You killed him to prevent that interview. I didn't kill him. Douglas might have and not told you. Why kill a man? John knew all about it. I did indeed. (laughs) (laughs) 
The next day, Lieutenant Kovitch was back. Yes, come in. Well, Fabian, I have something here which uh, might interest you. With a tight grin in his face, Lieutenant Kovitch held out the photograph of a woman. Fabian stared at the shiny picture before him, and then he fell back in his chair. He shut his eyes as if with a great ache in his head. Kovitch turned the picture over carefully and began to read from the typewritten data on the back. Name, Ilya Riemansk. Weight 100 pounds, blue eyes, black hair, oval face. Born 1914, New York City. Disappeared 1934. Believed a victim of amnesia, of Russian Slav parentage. no. You know, Fabian, it was uh, pretty silly to go through the files for a picture of a ventriloquist dummy. They all laughed at headquarters. And yet, yet, here she is, Ria Buchinska. Not paper mache, not wood, not a puppet. But a woman who once lived and moved about and disappeared. Take it from there, Fabian. Lieutenant, there's nothing to it. I, I saw her picture long ago. Like her looks and copied my puppet after her. Nothing to it, eh? Listen, Fabian, this morning I went through a stack of billboard magazines that high. In the year 1934, I found an interesting article concerning an act playing the smaller circuits known as Fabian and Sweet William. Sweet William was a little male dummy. As uh, usual in such acts, there was a girl assistant, Ilya Riemansk. Look at that picture. The resemblance between the real woman on one hand and Rhea Buczynska, the puppet on the other, is startling. She was my assistant, but that was all. I, I simply used her as a model. It all starts and ends with Rhea Buczynska. Why should you love a puppet so intensely? Because you love the original woman intensely. All right, all right. In, in 1934, I was billed as Fabian and Sweet William. Sweet William was a small, bulb-nosed little boy dummy I carved years ago. I was playing Los Angeles when this girl, Ilya Riemansk, appeared at the stage door one night. She wanted a job. I remember. It was autumn. John Fabian remembered Ilya Riemansk in the half-light of the stage alley. He remembered how startled he was at her fresh beauty... Her eagerness. The way the rain, when it came down through the narrow alley, caught in her dark hair and touched her feverish cheeks. She became his assistant, worked in the act. And in four short months, he who had always denied and scoffed at love became hopelessly loved with this woman. Then there were arguments, and things much more than arguments. Things done and said that were violent and unfair. He wanted her to marry him. She never quite accepted. He went into hysterical rages at her. Once he destroyed her wardrobe. That much she had taken. But it was somewhat different on that last night when he had shouted at her, taken hold of her and slapped her brutally three times across the face. And Ilya Riemansk vanished that night. Vanished. The police questioned me. There was talk of murder. But she was gone with no trace. A record of her was sent to all the largest cities. That was the end of it for the police. But not for me. 
The knowledge of her going was too much. She might be dead or just run away, but wherever she was, I knew I needed her. One night I returned home more depressed than usual. I collapsed on a chair. And before I knew it, I found myself speaking to Sweet William in the totally dark room. William, William. Oh, this is all over and done. I can't go on. Coward, you can get her back if you want. No, I can't. No, I can never get her back. Yes, yes, you can. Think. Think of a way to get her back. Think of a way. Come on. You can do it. Put me away. Start all over. Start all over? Yes. Begin carving. Exactly. And slowly and lovingly carving. Make the little arching nostrils just so. And cut her black thin eyebrows round and high. And make her cheeks in small duplicate hollows. And... No. It's monstrous. I, I can never do it. Yes, yes, you could. Yes, you could. 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 And the voice faded away like a water ripple in a dark cave. Blackness rushed over Fabian. His head fell forward. He whimpered. And sweet William sighed. And then they both lay silent. And solemnly unconscious. The next morning, John Fabian purchased the best grain piece of wood he could buy. But when he reached home, despair seized him. How could he fashion his warm ear from this cold wood? How could he shape this dumb block of dead substance into anything faintly approximating her glowing light? Go on, go on. It was Sweet William who egged him on. You can do it. And for 20 weeks he worked. He carved her hands into things as natural and beautiful as shells lying in the sun. And Sweet William lay dust cloaked in his box. From time to time, feebly croaking some sarcasm, some criticism, some hint, some help. But he was dying, soon to be untouched inanimate wood. As weeks passed and Fabian molded and scraped and polished the new wood, sweet William lay longer and longer in stricken silence. And one day, as Fabian held the puppet in his hand, sweet William seemed to look at him a moment with puzzled eyes. And then there was a death rattle in his throat. And Sweet William was gone. And now, as Fabian carved, a fluttering, an attempting of speech in his throat began echoing, re-echoing the sounds of Ilya Riemann. At the year's ending, he was thinned and without money. But by then, he had searched his stream of consciousness, experimented, and given the doll all the gracious mannerisms and shy gestures of the real woman. And then, at last, he held Ilya Riemansk in his arms again. They were together. He could talk to her, and she could reply. And the first thing he made the little creature say was, <laughs> I, uh, I love you, John Fabian. 
She did her work well. She loved me. I don't know why I married her. I see. What about the dead man, Arkham? I'd never seen him before until you showed me his body in the cellar. That's not true. Don't lie, John Fabian. <laughs> Fabian's cheeks drained white and the bones jutted out tensely. The puppet spoke, looking straight at Krovich. John received the first blackmail letter a month ago. It said simply... Rebushinska, born 1914, died 1934. Born again in 1930. Fabian seemed paralyzed, unable to answer. He had a trapped, helpless, insane expression. His lips trembled. He searched the room as if seeking some way out where a frustration and a truth did not wait to bar his way. How come threatened to expose me to the world? Go on. I wanted my love for Ilya kept to myself. What sort of a love would it be in the future if people really guessed the significance of my carving this figurine that talked and moved? People would laugh or be disgusted. Perverted, criminal mind, they'd shout. Ugly, horrible, revolting. And how could I play my love scenes with Rhea anymore when they knew? Not when with every word I uttered, someone in the audience would nudge someone else and whisper... She lived once, you know, but disappeared. They say he killed her. They say he loved her. How much did Arkham want? thousand dollars to start with. And more later. And so you killed him? No, I didn't kill Arkham, Lieutenant. I paid him $1,000. We found no money on him. Nevertheless, I paid him. Allison Douglas must have heard our conversation. They've wanted to be rid of me for years now. I'm not blind. Alice saw a way of ridding herself of me and getting some money, too. Why, she's nothing but a... Just a moment. There's something I wish to say. And yet I can't say it. Scrovich turned. He saw John Fabian's eyes widen in his head, as if a terrible conflict were raging, fighting within. His throat convulsed again and again, and lines cut deep in his cheek, and the hollows of his face sank in. I... I was in the room when Mr. Arkham came. No, no, Rhea. I lay in my box, and I listened, and I heard, and I know. No, no. Mr. Arkham threatened to destroy me, tear me up, burn me into ashes, if John didn't pay him a thousand dollars. And then, suddenly, there came a falling sound. Mr. Arkham's head must have struck the floor. I heard Mr. Fabian cry out, swearing and sobbing all in one. I heard a hissing, gasping, choking, horrible... You heard nothing. You're deaf and dumb and blind and lifeless. You heard nothing. Your ears are calm. But they hear. And then the hissing, the hissing, choking sound stopped. I heard John drag Mr. Ockham to the door, open it, and take Mr. Ockham down the stairs, under the face of... Toward the old dressing room that hadn't been used in years. Down! Down! They took the body! It was a scene so incongruous, so impossible. 
principles so completely beyond the veil of sanity and reason that Krovich recoiled even as he watched. If ever in the time of the world the forces that manipulate man struggle one side against the other, this was the time. The shocked, pallid face of John Fabian wrenching, the horrible protrusion of the eyes, the clenching of the teeth as a sensor, then relaxing again, the subtle move of the throat, and the high, sad, and accusative voice of Rio Buczynska leaping from her tiny, shining lips. Fabian must have known what was happening, and yet he did not know. I'm not made to live this way. There is nothing for us now, anyway. Because the world will know of us. Even when you killed him and I lay in my bronze box last night, I realized, we both realized that these were our last hours. Because while I've accepted your weaknesses and lies, I can't exist in murder. It couldn't have gone on. No one can live side by side with such knowledge. (laughs) Fabian took her in his arms and held her high into the warm sunlight. She looked down at him with her clear, honest way of seeing him. There were angry, helpless tears in his eyes. His hands shook, and in shaking made her tremble too. Her mouth closed and opened, silent, gaping and shutting again and again with no word. Fabian began to sob. He closed his fingers unbelievingly around his own throat. His eyes numbed. He looked like a man trying to remember something beautiful. Her voice. How it sounded. How how to make it sound again. How to make her take back all she said that was the truth. She's gone. She's gone. And I can't find her. I try, but I can't find her. She's run off behind the dark wall. And so deep down and far away in the night, I'll never be able to find her again. Yes. She's gone. Rhea Boshinska slipped bonelessly from his limp hand, folded over and glided noiselessly down to lie upon the cold, dirty floor. Her eyes closed, her mouth gently sealed. Fabian didn't even look at her as Krovich led him away. Suspense. And so closes Rio Bishinska, starring Armana Paigay as narrator, Joseph Kearns as Fabian, Wally Mayer as Provich, and Lorene Tuttle as Rhea. Tonight's study in Suspense, presented by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A. Roma Wines, America's largest selling wines. Yes, more Americans do enjoy Roma Wines than any other wines. And this is Truman Bradley to tell you why. It's because Roma wines taste better. You see, Roma selects and presses only the choicest California grapes. Then, with ancient skills and unmatched winemaking resources, Roma master vintners guide this luscious grape treasure unhurriedly. 
too tempting perfection. These finer Roma wines are placed with other mellow Roma wines to await later selection for your enjoyment from the world's greatest reserves of fine wines. This weekend, give your family and friends a surprise. Serve delicious Roma California Sherry. Roma Sherry is a glorious gold and amber wine, soft and mellow on the tongue, with a delightful nut-like taste that's a perfect invitation to dining pleasure. And remember to insist on Roma. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Sherry, because more Americans enjoy Roma wines than any other wines. Tonight's suspense radio play was by Mel Donnelly from a short story by Ray Bradbury. Be sure to listen next Thursday, same time, to Suspense. Produced and directed by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. KNX Columbia Square, Los Angeles. That was Rio Boshinska from Suspense here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. That is our third installment of our six-part Suspenso-Rama featuring Suspense episodes selected by our mysterious listeners. That came to us from Heather as we're leading into our 200th podcast episode. So it's very exciting. Not only are we knocking out suspense requests, but we're heading up to a, a milestone of 200. And the beauty is we get to listen to suspense episodes. It's <laughs> lovely. So let me just start with this. Just when you thought that ventriloquist dummy horror tropes were about as horrifying and grotesque and disturbing as they could get, along comes this. <laughs> so you found this creepy? Not in a traditional way. I did find it creepy, but not in a, ooh, this is a really compelling, wonderful story. Creepy in a, what in the hell is going on? <laughs> what is happening on so many levels? Who wrote this? And how are the performers getting through this? And... <laughs> <laughs> and yet when it's done, I'm not going to tell you that was terrible because it wasn't that either. I just don't know what the hell I listened to. It does take that basic element of what I think makes ventriloquist dummies scary, which is they are literally possessed objects. Like they exist to have somebody use them to become a, a conduit for a different persona. And it really takes it to the weird, distorted extremes of that notion. My broad general reaction is it is this strange mix of hilariously absurd right, and like very disturbing relationship stuff <laughs> <laughs> under your skin. Like, ew, that's an icky, icky sort of it's metaphor. Yeah, it's hard to get through this. Maybe it's just me. And boy, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble here because if it is just me. But it's really hard to get through this without at least once imagining him having sex with the doll. <laughs> I found it effortless to get through it without imagining <laughs> Eric, so yeah, it might just be you. <laughs> well, I, hey. well, well it's not literal. A- it's metaphorically being implied that he wants this doll to possess and to own to replace the woman that he yeah. couldn't. And I had to keep saying in my head, don't think about it, don't think about it, don't picture that, don't picture that, don't picture that, because that's... <laughs> 
You know, you know he did. I know no such thing. He did. Of course he did. With this storyline, the way it's set up and everything Tim just said and all of that, yeah, he did. Gross. Thanks, Heather. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I'm going to move away from that image. um, Because I saw it as something slightly (laughs) different than sexual. Uh, Because I think it's psychological more than anything. It is about as Tim said, this idea of separating a part of yourself Mm -hmm. and imbuing something else with it. I took it as he lost his lover. That's a whole nother question. I think he murdered her. Uh, There's no proof of that, but I think the story is clearly moving you in that direction despite his denials. So then he recreates her, but puts into her everything that is good about himself. To me, it's almost a do-over. It's not as deviant as you are suggesting, (laughs) Eric, in my mind, that it's a form of denial. And once she discovers that he is a murderer, he murdered the blackmailer here, but really he's kind of a stand-in for discovering that she herself is the product of murder. She's a replacement for this lover. She's gone again. And he lies to himself again by saying, oh, she's disappeared. She's behind the dark wall. I've looked for her now and I can't find her, which is the story he tells himself about his assistant, the lover, as well. So there are a lot of, like I said, mainly psychological things going on in here that may or may not be intentional, but uh, the story has enough ambiguity that it allows you to fill that in or imagine him having sex with the dummy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. He leaves those openings, shall we say. It's Gross. this, everything you just said, <laughs> yep, I got all that too. And I'm on board with all of that psychological stuff that's going on and all of that. It's just that at a certain point, he's just so enamored with it that you start to go, oh God, don't think about that. And so- like One of the peak was, disturbing moments is when he finally builds, or he finally gets the voice, the first thing he has the doll say is, I love you. I love you, yeah. That is a very disturbing moment. And- by no means that I fixate on that or anything. I think there's a lot of amazing things psychologically to discuss. And as Tim Just said check earlier- Check my blog for the slash fiction. <laughs> right. But as Tim said earlier about ventriloquists and dummies in general, is that the creepiness of what we just discussed, that you can bring out another side of your personality. And uh, But everybody in that room is so good about humoring him. <laughs> The dummy's real, and that's a real person, and they're so good about it. They're really nice to him about it. Well, what I find fascinating is that the cop, of course, humors him because he thinks he'll get more answers. But the other two, his wife and his press agent, respond not in a humoring way. Like, they've spent enough time that they truly believe it. And I think that's part of the creepiness. Right. And then you're you're looking at it through the eyes of the detective who's like, holy crap. They are all talking to this doll as if it's real. Alice likes the doll. She's jealous, but she holds nothing against the doll. She's good and honest and everything that John isn't. (laughs) Yeah. That's an interesting way that this story differs from other ventriloquist dummy stories is that usually you're infusing your darkest impulses into the dummy. And then the question is like, does this dummy become a murderous thing because it's secretly yourself? Mm -hmm. Here he takes everything... And maybe it is a reaction to like, I've murdered this woman. I feel terrible. So I'm going to take everything about myself that is redeemable and good and put it over here just to sort of protect the good version of me and then separate it from himself 
so that everyone else's reaction to it is, yes, we want to protect her because she's the good part of him. Yep. And I think it's interesting that he has to kill a part of himself for this to happen. Will he? Yes, sweet William. <laughs> sweet William. And that's, to me, the creepiest part of this entire episode is when sweet William is like, you should make her replace me. And then he slowly dies. Okay, so possibly the most horrific death scene in all of old time radio was performed by a dummy. That was hard to listen to. Also, do you know who the voice is of Sweet Willie? No, it was great. Let me get to my Is it Joseph Kearns? Did he do it himself? Joseph Kearns. Oh, yeah, because he's great as Fabian as well, especially when he breaks down near the end. But that death scene is hard to listen to. We've talked about it before, the fine line between comedy and horror. And this has a very thin, nearly transparent line. I think it stays on the creepy line, but what's great is that he commits. His death rattle is the death rattle of a ridiculous ventriloquist dummy, but because, he, <laughs> but because he commits to it and you go, well, no, he's really dying. And this is how a ventriloquist would make his dummy die. It's both creepy and poignant at the same time. I thought this swung wildly back and forth between ridiculous and absurd and then back to really skin crawling, horrible. Like when they opened the box, the Foley for opening that box. Yes. was like, is this a 40 foot by 40 foot box? (laughs) I don't know why I wrote this, but on my notes it says, that's a really creepy box. (laughs) They put a lot of character in that. Yeah. Oh, then the very end with the descriptions of he won't let her talk. He can't talk himself. The situation is so ridiculous, but it's described in such grotesqueries that it's both like that's absurd. And because I know what this means, it's like, eh, that was eloquent. <laughs> really? Eh. <laughs> uh, I a hundred percent agree. I think that's the best way to put it. <laughs> There's a lot of that in here. Uh, what was your review of Rebo Shinska? <laughs> Speaking of uh, the name, just to get it out there. Yeah, we all agreed on how to pronounce it before we started the podcast, but they never agreed before they started recording this episode. <laughs> they all had it different. I'm going to blow your mind, guys. Yes. I did some research. Whoa. The actress who played the narrator, who fulfilled the narrator role. June Havoc. Armana, yes. Armana Fargi, pseudonym for actress June Havoc, who, younger sister of Gypsy Rose Lee, this year that this episode came out, 1947, William Spear divorced his wife, and the following year, he married June Havoc, third marriage for both of them. <laughs> wow. That's a lot of onion layers there, Tim. <laughs> oh, and uh, if you go to our good friends at uh, the Wall Breakers, uh, Breaking Walls, the podcast, they have a nice little interview with the two of them, June Havoc and William Spear, talking about radio versus television. Oh, cool. Now that you brought it up, Let's jump into that. One of the best parts of this is June's narration. Wonderful. She has a riveting style, voice, everything about that narration. If she was around, I would try to hire her to do all sorts of stuff. She has a very strange quality, or at least she chose to have it for this job that really matches Ray Bradbury, because this is very fantastical stuff. 
that she has to describe. Yep. And it works really well. Um, it's also notable to even have a third-person omniscient narrator who's female in old-time radio. I can't think of another example. There might be one where it's the first-person narration because they're a character in the story, but every other narrator who's outside the story is always male. And I was, and then it made me think harder about it and going like, there are three decent female roles in here, which is rare for old-time radio. I had to really think hard to come up with a radio show that we've discussed that had three female voices in it. I came up with Evening Primrose. Yeah. And Evening Primrose, two of those female roles are quick, and there isn't a lot. Kind of monster creatures. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I was going to bring that up as well. Uh, Female narrator, very weird, I should say unique. I think that without her, I would not have enjoyed it as much as I ended up enjoying it. It helps the flaws of the story because it adds more diversity to the sound. And I think the flaw of the story is that it is so static. Bradbury has an interesting story, but it's full of exposition. And instead of flashing back to scene, it always flashes back to summary. How much more interesting would it be to hear... I'm talking to... uh... Well, that, I would love to have heard the murder to have the listener be inside the box with Ria Bushinska and hear that happening. I would love to have heard a little bit of their act. That would have been great. Or a flashback to the last big blowout fight between Fabian and his assistant lover, like right before he burned her wardrobe. He is a monster. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that would have given it a lot more life. And that is my main criticism of it is that it's a little inert in its presentation. Uh, But the story is so out there that it ends up working. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Joshua, that there are opportunities missed that they could have had a lot more fun with. However, then there's also the idea, we hear so much Rio Boshinska talking and having conversation that you start to do what they're doing. And that is, oh, that's the doll talking. And then you have to stop and go, that's not the doll talking. And then when you start to remember that, you realize, oh, this guy's having this conversation with himself and basically forcing himself to admit the crime through the doll telling himself to tell the truth. I want to highlight the the nice touch of as he and slash she are breaking down that her voice slides into his, his voice slides into hers, even though they're actually two different actors, which is Mm -hmm. nicely done. Yeah. Right before she dies, there's a little sob that's shared between them where it morphs from her crying to his. And it it essentially has two dummies committing suicide because that's really what both Sweet William and Rhea Bushinska do at the end. They sever their connection with Fabian and are gone. The fact that you just uttered the sentence, two dummies committing suicide. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. They did for him. But actually, they didn't do it for him. He did it for him because he is them. So... Stop messing with my head, Scrimshaw. There's got to be a sequel of him in prison where he's like carved a little friend out of a bar of soap. (laughs) (laughs) And now he's a Batman villain. Yes. (laughs) Any other final thoughts on this? I like when Bernard Douglas, the booking agent, when he talks of Oakum, the dead figure on the floor, that he looks vaguely familiar, maybe an actor. I'm like, oh, he thinks... 
all dead actors look alike. <laughs> so he has to be a booking agent. I didn't put that together with, you know, the kind of face you want to shoot or strangle or stab. <laughs> yeah. an actor. You guys remember Soap, the uh, half-hour sitcom yes. show from the 80s? Remember the ventriloquist uh, and the dummy yep. Bob? <laughs> By the way, just to get this out there, the best ventriloquist act in the history of all ventriloquist acts. That guy was phenomenal. Jay Johnson, right? That's his name. That sounds familiar. Like so. But it's interesting how the comedy from Soap in those scenes with the dummy came from them talking to the dummy. Like it would just become so hilarious because they would just get into fights with it and talk <laughs> with the dummy. And here we are in this entire show where I know it borders on it, but it never becomes funny to me. It becomes either they have slipped to a point mental health wise where they're now believing in the dummy or the cop is humoring to get information. By the way, he's got tremendous patience because he has full on conversations with the doll. So, uh, <laughs> a good copping but we don't laugh at it in this we don't go oh my god in soap they didn't even have to say anything funny they would just start talking to it and you would just start laughing um <laughs> so it's an interesting thing charlie mccarthy had a radio show <laughs> the most popular radio show ever well up there <laughs> were you guys confused by cresta blanca at the top yeah, yes. a little bit. Like suspense was two timing uh, with another <laughs> exactly. wine. You trollop. But then Roma comes back. So I did a little bit of research because it bothered me too much, frankly. Uh, <laughs> 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 I need to get a life. But uh, apparently they were owned by the same company, like Shenley Distillery. I think they mentioned it in there. So they were just like, hey, this is working well for Roma. Let's throw some Cresta Blanca in there too. And if you did your little Google search, you found out as I did, because I did the same thing for the same reasons, Cresta Blanca Winery still exists. So that's the closest we can come to getting suspense drunk today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Start talking to my stuff. <laughs> All right, let's throw it to a vote. Joshua, I'd like to hear your vote, because I really don't know what you're about to say. I don't. Yeah, I don't think this is one of Bradbury's best stories by any means. It's flawed in not concept, but execution. And perhaps that falls on the adapter. I don't know, maybe some wiser choices in adapting for audio as we already described. It's kind of part detective story and part psychological study. And I think the detective story, figuring out the mystery is where it falls apart a little, uh, at least in presentation. Um, but I always prefer something ambitious that doesn't quite hit the mark than something that is really lazy and run of the mill. So it definitely wins there. It's not a classic by any means, but I think it stands the test of time. Its flaws are structural, not an issue of aging poorly. It's mm. certainly of historical significance because it's the very first collaboration between Bradbury and Suspense. Uh, I think later ones will be more successful in my opinion, but this is definitely a classic of ventriloquist dummy stories. I, I do think it is better than Suspense's other creepy ventriloquist dummy story, uh, Flesh Peddler, which we talked yes. about a year or so ago. Tim? I would not call this a classic. Similar, I, I think parallel reasons. For me, this is a, a little bit of a, a patchwork of different things that doesn't necessarily become greater than some of its parts. It's got some really disturbing stuff, some really funny stuff, some well-produced stuff, and they don't necessarily all go together well. 
certainly stands the test of time and maybe even has a stronger impact now, this portrayal of this abusive, manipulative, controlling employer slash lover certainly hasn't gone away and has only gotten more spotlight of, of how much damage that sort of figure does. Uh, so I, I think that relationship makes the whole thing even more horrible. I will agree with both of you on the structural uh, issues with it and uh, opportunities missed storytelling wise and all of that. But I want to say the following. Uh, first, it is a classic of ventriloquist dummy horror. <laughs> Two, it is the best ventriloquist dummy horror ever by far. There's not another one that I like better than this one. And I'm not trying to be funny because this is really good for that. Three, performances. I thought all the performances were really great, all of them, uh, especially with what they were working with and what they were doing. And I'm sure that there was lots of giggling in rehearsal. As soon as one actor doesn't take this seriously, the right. entire thing collapses. Yep. It stands the test of time. I enjoyed it very, very much, beginning to end mostly because it was just a lot of, wow, this is super crazy. I like it when storytelling makes my eyes go wide and me just go, <laughs> what, what, what's happening? Uh, not to the point of uh, dark fantasy. That's not what I mean. <laughs> that's that's when your eyes go, they squint. You're like, what's happening? Yeah, they squint. That's well, it gets really swollen and pops out of your skull. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tim, tell them stuff. Please go visit ghoulishdelights.com, home of this podcast. All kinds of things there for you. You can link to our social media pages. You can comment on episodes. You can send us messages. If you have episodes you want us to listen to, suspense or otherwise, send us a message. We'll add it to the list. Um, and you'll also find that I shouldn't have started this one. That's too many. That's one sentence too much. I don't have anything for it. <laughs> You just panicked. You just I freaked out. <laughs> you disappeared behind the dark wall and we searched for you, but you were gone. <laughs> you can also go to patreon.com slash the morals and support this podcast. Uh, we have a lot of great benefits and different tier levels. Uh, we recently went through and did a refresh and added a lot of fun stuff, including a monthly Zoom happy hours with our patrons where we talk about, you guessed it, old time radio. It's a lot of fun. And so if you'd like to join us, uh, think about supporting us at patreon.com slash the morals. And we do theatrical productions of old time radio recreations and original work because this is 2020. And just for reference for everybody in the distant future, it's November of 2020. You can now hear or watch us perform online by going to parksquaretheater.org. That is a theater company we're currently working with. And coming up in December, uh, we're going to be doing a recreation of the 1939 classic Christmas Carol done by Mercury Theater on the air. Uh, again, you can watch us uh, and listen to us do that performance by going to parksquaretheater.org. You can also go to our YouTube page and subscribe. You can also listen to and watch the pilot episode for our video podcast, The Mysterious Old Radio Watching Society. Uh, on that particular episode, watching a Lights Out TV show 
Dead Man's Coat. And if you enjoy it, again, it's connected to Patreon. Uh, we're going to be putting out new episodes each time we reach a new goal on Patreon. So if you like it, help us out and we'll get to the next episode. All right. What's coming up next? Next, we are going to be doing another episode of Spence. Imagine that. It is Murder in G-Flat. Until then... Sweet William seemed to look at him a moment with puzzled eyes. And then there was a death rattle in his throat. 